wanted to share with you how significant, uh, before we get into the message, how significant our Wednesday nights have been. Uh, I was asked to uh, speak um, in Sacramento. Um, let's see, what's today? Wednesday. I, I was there Monday and Tuesday. Uh, got back yesterday. And I was asked to speak to 140 pastors that had gone to Sacramento and they were from all over California and they're trying to understand their civic responsibility and engage their congregations. And um, these were, I I was a minority, most were Hispanic and black. Um, They asked me to speak. I spoke in the Senate, uh, one of the Senate rooms, large section. I spoke two times for an hour to 70 each, and then the others would be getting tours, and they went and prayed with their assembly members and senators, state senators. And it was just a profound time. We heard from David Barton and a great time of worship. We were at the Hyatt Regency. It was paid for by a a donor, Um, a remarkable gathering. And uh, for folks who say California is lost, you you wouldn't see it in the eyes of these pastors. They were so excited. And uh, do, do we have the videos loaded? Yeah? So I'm just going to show you three snippets in the rotund. This is the capital, Sacramento. of them. So, uh, and, and a lot of folks were shocked. They hadn't heard prayer in the Capitol in a long time. Uh, hadn't heard worship music in the Capitol. It was a welcome sight. They, many of them went to meet with their assembly members. Uh, many who were, you know, ideologically uh, different than the pastors themselves. And the pastor said, what do we do when we go in there? I said, ask him how you can pray for him. And they went in, they did exactly that. How can we pray for you? And a lot of them were stunned and they had never had anyone ask him that before. And they prayed for him in their office, and uh, it was just a precious time. And I'd, I'd go into more, but I, I want to get into the study. So I share this with you because California is the front runner. As California goes, so goes the nation. And uh, here we are. I ran into Bob Tyler, who was the attorney that won the case for us with Little Oak School. And he was there contending for religious liberty at the state level for another issue. And he is just an amazing man. Uh, we're going to, together, the two of us are going to travel the state and visit churches together, and we're going to continue doing these Church United events in Sacramento and trying to encourage pastors to get engaged. Uh, We want to represent, we want pastors to represent in in all the counties. I think there's 40, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And and it's a grassroots effort. And each of these pastors oversee individual congregations. And, you know, when when John Adams said that, that a constitution will not survive without a moral people, uh, pastors, in a sense, have abdicated their responsibility over the years and, and have kind of fallen prey. And we're going to go through a little of that tonight. We're going to take a look. And, and I kind of promised you a crazy message, and it's going to be just that. It's, it's going to be a Valentine's message. And, and, uh, but it's gonna, not going to be like any Valentine's message you've ever heard. We're going to get, it, it's going to get weird. I just want to tell you that. So um, I, 
I don't seek to offend, but I'm certain I will. Okay? So um, if you don't want to be offended in any way, shape, or form, let's close our eyes, bow our heads, and while I'm praying, you leave. <laughs> Lord, we ask your blessing on the study tonight, and I just thank you for this chance to be with, with my friends, and I ask, Lord, that you would minister to us through all that you've put on my heart to share. And so we commit this to you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what we're going to talk about tonight is, um, uh, well, in a sense, sex. Uh, but, but we're looking at a culture that is driven in, in a large part by sex. And, um, and, and here we are uh, after the sexual revolution of the 60s, and we're going to figure out how we got there. Uh, and now we see this... this um, this move of the sexual revolution into what we see as segments of sexual identity, whether it's LGBTQ, uh, and then, you know, if you're up in Canada, you had a number of other letters to that list, uh, lesbian, transgender, uh, gay, bisexual, um, queer. Um, and, and, and in each of these, you have folks that are vying for, um, freedoms. So, I want to cover a couple things before I get into the message tonight. The first one is I I want to refresh our memory. You remember Aristotle said that there were two virtues, the doing virtue and the thinking virtue. Do you remember this? The, the, the doing virtue is you, you have a drive, you have a desire, right? We've covered this. You have a desire. You're hungry. Hunger is a desire. So that's a doing virtue. You're going to go get food. Now, now what kind of food are you going to get? Depends on your thinking virtue. So the, the, the rational human being seeks to do that which is best. The thinking mind, the logical mind pursues that. So my, my base desire is I want food, and I'm going to be driven to carbohydrates. I'm going to be driven to cold pizza. I'm going to be driven to sugars. I'm going to be driven to those things that do something to my mind, but do a, 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 a terrible disservice to my body. Yes? The thinking virtue is instead of waking up and having cold pizza and getting a carb load... You, you get a, a protein shake with a lo- low carbohydrate count so that you have more protein than you have carbohydrates because the body burns carbohydrates first. And of course, most Americans have stored fat, which is a high, uh, uh, high octane fuel that we seldom burn. We just store and we want to get our body to a place where we're burning the, the fat cells. We actually get into a place where we're far more efficient. We need less sleep. Carbohydrates make us tired. We get a crash in that. So you have, you have a doing virtue and you have a thinking virtue. And Aristotle pointed this out. Now, one of the greatest drives we have, and this is a doing virtue, this is the thing that we want most. And for, for adolescent males, it's the fourth most intense drive they possess. First is for air, second is for water, third is for food, and fourth is for sex. And, and most men would say, well, I, I can do without water and food. <laughs> and sometimes air, I guess, you know. So this is an enormous drive in the, in the human capacity. And one of the reasons why it's an enormous drive is because we've been created to procreate. And, and thus, you, you have this enormous drive. And here we are in, in our lifetime where if you have a large family, you're looked at as weird. Uh, if, you, if you don't believe in contraception, you're, you're looked at as weird. If you believe in um, heterosexual uh, lifestyle, you're looked at as weird. Uh, if, if you think that that is a moral virtue, you're looked at as weird. If, um, 
if you believe in a moral foundation or an absolute or you have biblical foundations for the way in which you approach sexuality, it's considered uh, prudish and, and weird. And you are the, you are, you're not driving the culture. It isn't the driving force in the culture. The driving force in the culture we know is that sex sells. And this is what, um, this is what St. Augustine came up with when he did the city of God and the city of man. And he had come up with this very profound term called libido dominandi, which is the sexual liberation, but it leads to political control. Uh, dominandi is this, this desire to control somebody else. And the way you control them, this, this, this way to control them is um, you've got to figure out some way to control a human being. And so he put these two terms together, libido dominandi, and this purpose to control another human being. And he listed it in the two cities. He had the city, uh, the, the human society can be divided into two cities depending on how man lives. The city of man, man lives according to themselves. So this would be a doing virtue. It's what I want and I'm going to do it. And then the city of God, men live according to laws and designs. I want to do what's morally right. There's a foundation that I'm to pursue. I'm a moral person, thus I'm a logical person. And I apply the thinking virtue instead of just the debased doing virtue. Does everyone understand that? Are there any questions on that? Because you really have to grasp that before we can go further. Does anyone want me to elaborate more or do we have that? Okay, good, good. So um, the Bible's full of, of doing virtues. Uh, the Bible's full of pictures of doing virtues because, you know, what's amazing about the Bible is it doesn't leave out any detail. And it is, it is a very explicit uh, writing um, that I, com- I consider to be inerrant and completely true. And I love the fact that it, it doesn't leave out the stuff. It, 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 it's pretty intense. Uh, one one story that you cannot teach in Sunday school because honestly, it, it's it's almost a story of what not to do, and you can't teach it because it's so sexually explicit that it's really difficult. I mean, you can come up with some ideas, like when he tore down the temple and the like. But I'm talking about this group. Do you know the guy there? Who is it? Samson, and who's the lady? Delilah. Anyone named Delilah? A lot of people named Lila, but I, I, I don't know that I've ever heard Delilah used. And if it is, they just probably don't know the meaning, or maybe they do. And it was just an odd family, but, but you have, sorry, if there's someone Delilah, I'm in so much trouble right now, but here's a picture of a man that every time, and he was a judge in Israel. You see it in judges 14, 15, and 16. He was a judge in Israel uh, and the judges came just before the king came. And the judges ruled Israel, um, and, and, and so what, what they did is uh, the, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon a person, and then they would deliver them from bondage of the Philistines. And in this time, there wasn't anyone, and, and uh, Manoah and his wife were prophesied by an angel. And there wasn't a, another occurrence of this except for uh, when we hear about um, the, the proclamation that, that Mary would be with child, that the, the angel told her. And this was another occurrence where the angel told Manoah and his wife that they were going to have a, a son and that he would do the Nazarite vow and he'd be raised in all the culture of the Hebrews and he would study the scriptures and, and make a vow to not touch anything dead and to not cut his hair and to not to drink any wine. And, you know, this is a kid that was basically homeschooled, uh, raised in the scriptures. Anyone tracking me? I mean, he, he lived in a cloistered place up in Montana. 
I mean, I, I can go, you know, real far with it. But the idea is, is he was raised with everything necessary to have a moral foundation. And the very first time we see him speak, and you want to you hear how a guy who has been proclaimed by an angel, raised godly in a Nazarite vow, what does this man have to say to humanity? And the very first words he ever speaks is, I want to marry a pagan woman, mom and dad. That's the very first words out of his mouth. I want to marry a pagan woman. You can't do that. It's against everything we've taught you and raised you to do. I want to marry her. She's the one I want. This is a doing virtue. She's hot. I want her. I don't care what you and mom think. Dad, I'm going to get her. He goes down to get her. He gets in a gambling debt to go pay off the debt. He kills a bunch of Philistines, takes her clothing, pays off the debt. And when he killed the Philistines, first of all, when he killed the Philistines, how did he kill them? No, spirit of the Lord came upon him to pay off a gambling debt. Teach that to Sunday school kids. Anyone tracking me so far? He, he, he walks through a vineyard. He, he takes honey out of a dead carcass, violates every one. Uh, well, with the exception of cutting his hair, he violates every single one of the Nazarite vows. And then every time he slept with Delilah and they wanted to know the source of his strength, and he, he would lie to her. So he would lie to her, spend an entire night in a prostitute's bed. Then the Philistines would come in to get him. And what would happen? Come on, there's, there's a pattern here. Work with me. Spirit of the Lord would come upon him and he'd break the bonds. Anybody troubled by this? Isn't this strange to you? An entire night in a prostitute's bed, violating covenants with God. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he breaks the bond. <laughs> vanquishes the Philistines. Not once, not twice. Third time, she, I think it is, she, 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 he finally says, it's my hair. They cut his hair. He wakes up, can't do it. And he didn't even know that the spirit of the Lord had departed from him because he didn't even know he had it. He just thought it was him the whole time. And we find him pinned between the temple, tied up, mocked, shaved. And he says, I, w- I want revenge. And what happens then? Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. You're, you're catching on up here. This one, nobody here. It's Wednesday. I'm tired too. I've been in Sacramento for two days. Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And the scripture says he killed more Philistines in his death than he did while he was alive. End of story. Thank you very much. Let's move on. The part we miss though, is that there was 20 years of peace in Israel. And what we miss is the beginning of the story. Judges 14, four, which says what his parents didn't realize, what Manoah and his wife didn't realize is God was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. Now, why would God pick Samson and not somebody else who's obeying? Because, Philip, because Samson was equipped to contend with the culture that no one else, and, and, and Samson was willing to confront the Philistines and no one else was. And he was a very immoral man, but he was willing to fight for God's people. Sound like anybody we know? And you're wondering, well, how can we have a leader that's immoral? Well, just take a look at Samson. Take a look at Rahab. What's interesting about Samson, he's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. If you're Jewish tonight, the Christian teaching, he's in the hall of faith. We don't even know what to do with him. And we try to moralize the story and come up with all kinds of ideas, but that's the reality of it. God chose a man who was willing to do something that nobody else was. And he said, okay, I'm going to empower you to do it. And then we're going to come to another interesting story. And by the way, how did Delilah dominate him? Psst, tss, 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 tss. 
Yeah, you don't love me. You don't. And playing games. The Bible says keep the marriage bed pure. And that means you don't, you don't use the marriage bed as, well, I'm, I'm up. No. No, the intimacy is, is you have to connect emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And, and you don't use that to dominate someone else. Well, I'm going to withhold that until you do what I... Mm-mm. And really what was portrayed here in his downfall was that he, he, was, he was beaten. Libido dominandi. She had control over him and she used sex to do it. Anyone disagree with that? So here we are in a culture that emphasizes sex, yes? Everything is sex. They say, they say a male adolescent every 15 to 18 seconds has a sexual thought, whether major or minor whether it's billboards or magazines or internet or his friends talking about it or just walk around, sex, sex, I got to go to math class. Thinking about stuff all the time, all the time. And and we're saturated with it. And and every form of deviance you can imagine. And contending, you got to go to school and what bathroom do I use? And and who are you today? And and what, what is a pronoun am I supposed to use to speak to you? And, and all the rules and all the requirements and the intensity of a child growing up in this culture, especially in California, and, 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 it, and it's gone from this place of a sexual revolution to this idea of political correctness to dominate human beings to submit to their ideology. And this has gone on. So what happens is in the culture that they build that's driven by sex, you, you have... Hollywood, which is inundated with this mindset that sex sells. You can't really watch a movie without sex being in it. Even PG, it's, there's sex in it. And, and what is R today was X years ago. And what is PG-13 today was R. And what is PG is, is PG. Uh, I would even go further. I, I mean, it's, it's, everything is gone. And everything has innuendo and everything's saturated with it. So you have a culture. Now, how is the culture managed? People enter in. They want to make a, di- a difference. They're ideal. No, no, no. That's not the word I'm looking at. They have ideals. And they think that it's going to be accomplished here. And they, they step into the industry. And as they begin to rise from, you know, a, you know, assistant, assistant editor to an assistant editor to an editor, and you get up to some of these places of power, and then the person says, um, what are you doing tonight? And if you, if you don't engage their, their move, you're not going anywhere. And then we get the Harvey Weinsteins, yes? And then this house of cards collapses, because all these people that stepped in wanting to accomplish something realize that this industry oppresses them and it's built on sexual domination and you don't rise without being dominated. And then finally people say enough is enough. And we've gone through this. Remember when we had William Bradford and, and, uh, um, the Mayflower compact, the very first political compact on, on American soil. And they said for the promulgation of the Christian gospel, you remember that? And then direct descendants of William Bradford was that couple. And that couple had two sons, and their oldest son was Hugh Hefner. So you go from 
this, this congregational Puritan, Christian following, seeking, and then all of a sudden you end up with a Hugh Hefner. And why did Hugh Hefner start Playboy? Because the woman he was in love with when he went off to fight in the war, and his parents wanted to be a minister, but he went off, fought the war. When he came back, they got married. His wife confessed to him that she had had a, a premarital relationship. He was so upset by it that after two kids, they divorced. And he said, enough is enough. And he, he lived the, the epitome of, of a bachelor life and started Playboy and everything else. And then the sexual revolution came in. And the early part of the sexual revolution, it was men kind of doing what they wanted to do. And, and women had freedom, but they had freedom only as far as men would allow them. And this isn't anything new. This is sexual domination. And we can go further back than Samson and Delilah. A lot of you are going to struggle with this portion. I promised you we'd take a look at Genesis 9. I did tell you there'd be a portion of a Bible study for those of you who didn't come for one. Too bad. This is, this is out of Genesis 9. Here's the story. Now the sons of Noah went out of the ark. So God floods the whole earth. You got three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And they've got their, their two, they've got their wives. So there's six of them there. Those, those three couples are going to procreate the earth as well as Noah and his wife. So four couples need to procreate and, and re-inhabit the earth. So you've got a very limited gene pool. You want to protect that gene pool. It's like the last pandas on the earth. It's the last California condors tracking me. Okay. So you really don't want anyone screwing up at this point. Understood? Let's see the story. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard, and then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. So he's buck naked in his tent and drunk as a skunk. Noah. By the way, we don't have any sayings of Noah except for in this chapter. It's the only time we hear Noah speak. Watch this. He drank the wine, was drunk, became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, and Ham, so this is the middle son, Ham. Don't be a Ham. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now the word told means he, he, he loved the idea of exposing this darkness. He, he re, he, there was just this absolute insatiable desire to reveal this, this darkness in his dad. That's the intensity of the Hebrew word. So he goes out and he tells this sordid tale to the brothers. And he says um, to Shem, Shem and Japheth, he told him of the nakedness of the father, told the two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Now, okay, I don't know what kind of home you were raised in. Um, and, and I don't want this on the CD, so we might have to edit. I see my dad naked. He's passed, but, you know, he, hey, dad, oh, okay, you know. We go to the pool and we shower and then, you know, and it's not like I'm going, dad, and walking backwards and putting a, and, and if I saw him, he didn't go, you're cursed and their firstborn, Molly, and everyone else is finished. Don't, we're going to see what happens and, and how he puts this curse on them. So it says here, uh, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. I want you guys to hear that word nakedness because in the Hebrew, it has a whole different connotation. So Noah awoke from his wine. 
Now, here's the telling tale. Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. How do you know someone saw you naked? He knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of the son of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The idea is, because he lived so long, he probably was alive in the time of Abraham. Certainly Japheth was alive in the time of Abraham. So what you have in the, in the Pentateuch, the first five books, is you have um, Adam, who was alive for Noah. Noah translates to, I mean, you're, you're only two people removed from, from uh, an, an, an account of creation. Now, you look at this and you think, well, what's so bad about it? I want to read this to you. And this is, this is a Hebrew understanding of Genesis 9. It's not a Protestant understanding because we wouldn't know what to do with it, with the original Hebrew. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers who were outside. When Noah woke from his drunken stupor, he learned what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, and he will be to his brother's. Why does Noah express such a severe curse for the seemingly minor sin of, of observing his nakedness? And these Hebrew scholars break down the Hebrew and they point out, as already anticipated, these rabbis, they, they suggest and point out clearly, um, there's a far more severe crime here. The homosexual rape of Noah when he was inebriated this indeed is the kind of offense that would most naturally provoke severe reaction depicted in the text. This assumption also accounts for the formulation in verse 24. Noah woke from his drunken stupor and knew what his youngest son had done to him. If his son had only looked at him, how would Noah have known when he awoke that, his, that this had occurred? Further, the final words had done to him imply much more concrete and physical act than mere gazing. And for the, bro- the brothers to walk backwards, they didn't want to see what had happened to their father. The statement that Noah knew what was done to him after waking from his drunken stupor contrasts with Lot, who similarly uh, ab- was abused sexually by his daughters while drunk and concerned whom we read. He did not know when he lay down or when he arose. Leviticus twenty seventeen shows that seeing nakedness is a euphemism for sex. If a man has sexual intercourse with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or his mother, so that he sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace. They must be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has exposed his sister's nakedness. He will bear his punishment for iniquity. Most likely the phrase describing Noah's nakedness uh, and he became revealed inside his tent meant to evoke the theme of incest or revealing of nakedness serves as a euphemism for incest, especially in the prohibitions in Leviticus. And um, the sin, this, this rabbi says, thus the sin in the original narrative is not a homosexual sex itself, but forced incest of a son with his father in a situation in which the father had no ability to defend himself, that it, this would explain the harshness of the father's curse. Now, why would a son do that to his father? Power. 
The oldest son gets the blessing. The youngest son doesn't have to do anything because everybody else does it for him. But the middle son is invisible. That's an idea. I don't know what occurred. All I know is it ruined a family relationship and the firstborn of that family was cursed to be servants to the other two families. And when you've got to repopulate the earth and you make a curse on a son, it better be something more than just seeing dad naked. So when we look at the act of sex, it's a gift of God for intimacy, right? And as the scripture points out, it's, it's, it's between a husband and a wife for this idea of intimacy. And everyone longs to be known and be intimate. And the Bible says that they were naked and unashamed. The idea is I know all your secrets. I know everything about you. Uh, I love you with the love Christ loves. And, and, and that's where you go with it. But we go through the sexual revolution and we all get kind of tweaked and bent. And everybody has something in this room. Everybody's got something. And we've moved away from this idea of a moral foundation. One of the things that uh, Dennis Prager pointed out is he said, when, uh, when he had a talk show call-in, or he has, he has a talk show, and he had call-in, and he got to pick the topic, and he said, tell me why you didn't take drugs and what stopped you from taking drugs if you didn't. Over 100 people called. Only two were different in their answers, but every other one, 98% of them said, I feared my mother or I feared my father. None of them said, because I love my mother and I love my father. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom. The wise restraints that make men free, we've covered that. You apply restraints towards evil in order to pursue excellence. We think freedom is the absence of restraint. And so we look at sexual revolution, this this idea of sexual liberation, and it brings itself into this idea of political control because you have the two cities of God. And if we can take this drive of man and this passion of man, this fourth most intense drive of a male, and we can turn this into a passion where it's the doing virtue instead of the thinking virtue, and we don't rationalize with morality and seek to apply restraints in order to pursue excellence, we get ourselves in a mess, right? And if you doubt this idea of of libido dominandi and this idea of oppressing and that sex is the way that you gain political control, just remember this. This is an intifada that occurred in, um, in Israel in 2002. I want to read it to you. I wrote it down here. In 2002, there was an intifada uh, into Ramallah, which is is, uh, part of the Palestinian area. And the intifada, the the Muslims rose up. They attacked. The Israelites invaded. The Jews invaded Ramallah. They took over the city. And the first thing they did when they took over the cities, they took over the television stations. And the very first thing they did when they took over the television stations, the Bechet and the CIA and they did this. Porn movies and programs are being broadcast by Israeli troops who have taken over three Palestinian television stations in Ramallah. Irate residents of the besieged West Bank town said on Saturday. Why would they do that? Because if you're watching pornography, which draws everybody, otherwise Madison Avenue wouldn't be making a fortune. And your kids are like, oh, and every time you turn, oh, let's check the news. Oh. And the kids are sneaking in when they're, oh, right? And then, you know, the husbands are checking it out and the wives are going, this is off. And, they're, and everybody's talking about it. And, and what happens? They forget about an invasion. This is how you dominate a culture. You make them 
inebriated to passion instead of mind. The doing virtue and the thinking virtue. If I can get you just doing, I don't have to get you thinking, and then I can make you dumb and stupid and dominate you. You see how that works? This wasn't the Israelis' idea. This was this guy's idea. Anyone know who that is? The Marquis de Sade? You guys ever heard of sadism? Ooh. (laughs) Okay, I just thought I'd bring that up. I mean, it is Valentine's Day. He lived from June 1740 to December of 1814. Uh, He was a French nobleman, revolutionary politician, philosopher, and writer, and famous for his libertine sexuality. His works included novels, short stories, plays, dialogues, political tracts. In his lifetime, some were published under his own name, while others appeared anonymously, of which uh, Marquis de Sade denied being the author Uh, The Marquis de Sade is best known for his erotic works, which combine philosophical discourse with pornography, depicting sexual fantasies with an emphasis on violence, criminality, blaspheming against Christianity. He was a proponent of extreme freedom, unrestrained by morality, religion, or law. The words sadism and sadist are derived from his name. He wrote this book, Justine, and he had all these etchings in it. And I couldn't show you a single etching and still remain uh, a pastor Uh, of moral position in our community. And this is, this is at the French revolution. So they take over it's from the top down, they dominate. And how do they control the masses and dominate them? Libido dominante. How do they dominate and subject the people? He brings this out and the Marquis de Sade. One of the things he said is what we need to do is parade all of the women of France naked in, in theaters. Well, the problem is you can only fit so many people in a theater and only so many people can get a book. And what we've done today is we have, we have, we have this technology that we can get into everybody's phone and everybody's house. Now, why do we suppress and why is the church supposed to fight against pornography? Because pornography is a direct attempt of a libido dominante to to dominate a culture. And that broke down one of the greatest um, uh, Supreme Court cases, Justice Brennan was part of it, was Roth versus uh, the United States. I think I have it here. Under common law rule that prevailed before Roth, uh, articulated most famously in the 1868 English case, Regina versus Hicklin, any material that tended to deprave and corrupt those whose minds are open to such immoral influences was deemed obscene. And could be banned on that basis. Thus works by Balzac, Flaubert, James, Joyce, and D.H. Lawrence were banned based on isolated passages and the effect they might have on children. And here we are contending and we're, we're the ones called book burners. Uh, we're the ones who, you know, and, and we're, we're basically what folks are fighting for is parent rights. Well, the state wants to take away parental rights and they're going to dictate what the moral basis is, but they're going to use these writings to... to make education as debased as possible and, and go towards the doing virtues as opposed to the thinking virtues. You apply restraints in order to pursue excellence. The, the Israelites knew what to do with, with the Muslims, right? Marquis de Sade knew what to do in the French Revolution. Are, are you tracking me? 
Samuel Roth, who ran a literary business in New York City, was convinced under federal statute criminalizing the sending of obscene, lewd, or lascivious or filthy materials through the mail for advertising and selling a publication called American Aphrodite, a quarterly for fancy free, uh, containing literary erotica, nude photography. David Alberts, who ran the mail order business from Los Angeles, was convicted under California statute for publishing pictures of nude and scantily clad women. The court granted and affirmed both convictions. Roth came down to a 6-3 decision with the opinion of the court authored by William J. Brennan. And basically what they said is, it's no longer, it's no longer the concern of the court. What, what will happen is every community will get to decide what they want. And basically, uh, this was that man, and here's how it ended up. Roth versus United States New Standard, the Roth test no longer used children as the baseline, but rather the average person applying contemporary community standards open to interpretation. And then Miller versus California in 73, another new standard as court moved in a more conservative direction, local community standards, current tendencies, legal definition of obscenity, hardcore pornography, broadcast media more stringently regulated, public airwaves are scarce, so government may ban language and nudity on broadcast media that is offensive through, um, although not obscene. And it just began to water down and break away. And if you think, well, you know, the United States, well, it ushered in. And, and as you can see, that the, the court date, 1957, it ushers in the sexual revolution. But the one behind it was this guy. His name was William Reich. He was a Jewish Freudian psychoanalyst. He launched a pornographic psychological offensive in an attempt to undermine white Western society. He said, if the wife and children within the home become sexualized, they will lose their feelings of duty and honor. And it was Freud who came up with this concept. And Freud, he knew how to make money. And he worked with the Rothschilds and he got them to back what he was doing. Oedipus complex was, many believe it was his own confession because he had, he had slept with his sister-in-law. And in this whole idea that every, every man has this innate desire to have sex with their mother. And that was his concept. And so what happened is the Protestant church now became a church of psychology and psychoanalysis. And they embraced all of this. And this idea of standing on moral ground and saying this is obscene and we need to keep kids away because what happens is it's domination of a culture. And what now happens is we have this, this culture that sex sells. And, and here we are today. The average age of exposure to internet pornography is 11 years old. 11 years old. Um... I like this. I want to read this to you. There was a, a Catholic priest, a Monsignor, his name was John Ryan. And this was the last victory that the church had. And it was in, in the 30s, actually 1932. And uh, Monsignor Ryan contended, you guys remember me talking about Margaret Sanger? Yeah. Uh, really um, elevated as the founder of Planned Parenthood. She was a eugenicist, wanted to get rid of inferior races. And she wanted contraception in the United States, which all the churches stood in opposition to. I'll tell you what, if, if you're part of um, uh, um, the Wilkinson family, Audra and Ken, you know how many kids they have? Ten? I don't even know. Ten? Ten. They walk into a store with ten children. Do you know the looks they get? Everyone looks at them like they're insane and crazy because our culture says, ah, and everything for us today is about 
freedom. And what has happened because of Reich and Freud and all these events, Marquis de Sade, we have managed to convince the culture that freedom of speech is pornography. They won the battle. They contended back in 57. They they contended in 34. They were fighting for the culture. The churches were fighting for the culture. But along came this idea that the First Amendment is the freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is freedom to say anything and do anything you want. And that pornography is freedom of speech. And so we saturate the culture, libido dominandi, and just like the Jews did with, with the Muslims, and just like the Marquis de Sade did in the French Revolution, we have everybody looking at the television set and we get anything done that we want. I'll open it up for questions in a minute. I want to read to you a couple things I wrote down. Uh, one of the things that William Reich did is he said, um, he said that we, you need mass situations so it becomes culturally um, acceptable. And you have to do these mass demonstrations. And so what you get in the, in the proletariat is, is when you want to bring in communism or you want to bring in fascism or you want to take away individual rights and have an oligarchy, you got to have stupid people that are going to march for you and wear really cool hats. And it has to be about liberation. And the freedom is to be able to do whatever I want as opposed to what's the city of God, his standards, his purposes, right? And so you, you have these marching for that and, and they, they work towards that. You had a mass situation in Woodstock in the 60s. And I remember pictures of those. I was a young kid. I remember being at the Washington Monument with my father in a military uniform, hiding behind my dad at six years of age. And they were throwing beer bottles at my father as the entire area of Washington, D.C. was just filled with hippies. And, and I got an eye full of stuff that at six years of age, I still remember. And this was a Dionysian kind of festival. I mean, it was a drunken festival and it was just crazy. Uh, Woodstock was, but so was everything that was going on at the Capitol. And what happened is culturally it became sanctioned and approved. First, it starts with newscasters kind of going, you know, wow, this is unbelievable. And then giggling at it. And then all of a sudden defending it as an expression of freedom of speech. And we've had these, these techniques of domination and technology has really moved this quickly into our, our, the forefront of our culture and cultural elites. Today, you can't get a job in a major institution if you have anything to say about God's morality. Major educational institution. Because what's happened is our younger generation have been hit with this. And quite honestly, some of the, the millennials and the ones behind them, I think it's called the X generation. Is that right? They're, they're almost asexual. It's like, I don't even, I'm so sick of this. I've, I've seen more images in my lifetime I want to see, and I don't, it's not, I don't get it. And there's almost a revolution, like, is, there's got to be more to life than this. I'm not happy. I don't have a connection with another human being. I'm, I'm sitting and watching images all day. I, I've, I've indulged myself to the point where I, I don't even know what life is about. And we're at a, we're at a crux where, it's collapsing. And these younger folks are saying, wait a minute, I want to do something different. And as they're coming into schools and you see these young folks that are contending at these major universities and they've been accepted because they have a mind, 
they put aside their, their doing virtues and applied thinking virtues. And now they've obtained access into these schools. And these schools are shocked that they're standing in rebellion to the administration because they're the elites. They're the cultural elites. And they're saying, you should be grateful we allowed you in here. And, and they shun you and they shame you. And it used to be at Berkeley, it was a bastion of free speech. Now, if you walk in there with anything contending with political correctness, they burn the city and they shut you down and don't allow you to come. And they have their proletariat class that make fun of you or they kill you. And this is libido dominandi. And this is what it's done to our culture. Every one of us is bent in some way or another because we have all, when they talk about this, I remember seeing porn at 11 and I'm 53 years old. I remember a bag of Playboys when I went over to my friend's house and his mother had been divorced and the oldest son had him. And you think about other generations and all the things and how it's affected. Imagine what happened with Noah and Ham and, and that cultural effect down the line. And it's, it's, don't be shocked when it's Canaan and you see Delilah down there. And it has generational effects. So what's the church going to do? Because domination means that domination. We have got your mind consumed. We have you driven by passion and not by ethic. We have you driven by passion and not by thinking. We have you driven by passion and not by logic. We have, you, we, we, have, we have you driven by passion and not by morals. And now we dominate the church and we have the church start thinking psychologically and we don't stand upon the word of God and we teach less and less of it. And all of a sudden, guys like me and anyone who believes the Bible to be inerrant, we're idiots. And yet, what, what's the ultimate course? A constitutional republic that we've been given, as Adam said, a constitution only survives with the moral people. It will be gone because we'll be dominated because we're all going to just be zombies watching a television while they've invaded us. I hesitate to even say the name, but do you guys remember the vagina monologues? That dominated Notre Dame University. And they finally allowed it in. They started to talk about contraception and the whole Catholic church started to fall. And it used to be the bastion of morality would hold the line. What was that? Oh, scared the daylights. And people would say, you can't get in the way of it because it's freedom. It's freedom. So you have the breakdown of modesty to gain control. Just like William Reich pointed out. That's how you dominate the family. You break down the modesty, you gain control. And you attack structures that defend morality. I'm the prude. And it's William Reich wrote a book called The Mass Psychology of Fascism. And he was right. And the proletariat of the revolution are the foot soldiers. And they're all the dumb ones that just walk and march and have no idea. And they can't even make sense. I've been watching videos where they say they put the Trump tax plan out there. And they say, this is Bernie Sanders' tax plan. What do you think? Oh, I love it. And they go, well, it's Trump. Oh, and they go, I hate Trump. Can you tell me one thing you don't like about him? That he, one of the positions he's taken or they, I love Hillary Clinton or I love Bernie Sanders. Can you tell me one thing you like about him? No, it's all doing virtue. No thinking virtue. They are, they are moved by passion and, and they've lost this idea of, of logic and reason and they're uneducated. You, you will allow the v- vagina monologues to come to Notre Dame University, but they won't allow the passion play at Notre Dame. Anyone tracking me on this? 
You know what libido dominandi is? Modern psychology. Modern psychology. Freud said this. It was interesting. He said he was invited to come to Europe to meet with another psychologist. He said, I'd like to come, but I'm afraid my patients will become well in my absence. You know what he used psychology for? And, and attributed all to sex? Control. That's how he got the Rockefellers to give him money and got all these folks. And he was brilliant as far as making money. Sex sells stuff. A sexually permissive culture will sell more products because people will be driven by passions and not by logic. I can't afford it, but I got to have it. Contraception used to be a virtue. Excuse me, contraception became a virtue. Sodomy became a virtue. That's where we are today. If you have a position biblically, you are a prude and you're an idiot. And yet the reality is we all have our struggles, but don't we want intimacy and connection with God? We're designed that way. If, if the millennial generation, the X generation is looking and saying, there's got to be something more, where are the people to tell them that there is? Um, oh, one of the things that um, Monsignor Ryan did is he, he, he was able to get all of the local parishes to boycott Warner Theaters in 1934 and was successful. And, and these local churches, they were small churches that moved in the community and the community connected with them. And so when one, when, when one pastor would say, we're not doing it, and the Monsignor gave the order, the entire Philadelphia region shut down. Today, we're all disjointed. And what so moved me up in Sacramento is we were church united and we all had this burden and we were a, a, we were a small minority of pastors. But what I was so excited about is there was an enormous ethnic grouping of the pastors and the guy who led it, uh, it, 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 a professing homosexual that came out of the homosexual lifestyle, three kids married. And he says, homosexuality is my sin of choice. He said, I can tell when guys are hitting on me. I can tell and he, he he's the most unlikely leader of these pastors and he's he's kind of effeminate and the like and every one of us adores him because he gets it he's looking at his life and saying look i struggle like everybody else does and i got bends and i I came from i listen my family put the fun in dysfunction and if you got issues and you got things and you want to know about skeletons in the closet i got them but I'm here to tell you, if, if we're going to see a culture survive and, and a constitutional republic survive and not guys I've ever met, and, and you're going to have a bend in both areas of, of the world with psychology, well, then he never was a homosexual. Begin with. We'll never be able to discuss that because if there is that argument, we have suppressed the idea of, of thinking virtues, that, that you're no longer permitted to practice that and we will we'll put you in jail. So there's no longer a free exchange of ideas in the First Amendment. Everyone is born with an unruly passion, and we must use reason to control them. And that reason comes, faith comes by hearing, hearing from the Word of God. Look, I don't care what your sin is. I got them too, and mine beat yours. And Rob McCoy, left to his own vices and his passions, is a vile human being, and I will suppress you and dominate you. And there's either going to be the dominators and, and those who are suppressed. 
and there will be no equality. There'll, there'll, there'll be no humanity. There'll be no identity. There'll be no pursuit of excellence. That's where we'll end up. But I die to myself. I die to myself. I tell people I, I am a monogamous, monogamous lesbian trapped in a man's body. How's that? How do you, how do you want me to communicate with a culture that we have distorted it so much that whatever God says, we're trying to bend it to fit our life. And we all know what we're doing, but we have to come back to what he says, because again, our founder said a constitution will only survive with a moral people. If you're a libertarian and you're like, you know what? Just let everyone do what they want to do. Good luck with that. Because this is still the issue. You saw the facts. I didn't have to bring out biblical issues with that. You saw exactly what the Jews did. You saw exactly what the Marquis de Sade did. I didn't even do biblical stuff on that. You come to your own conclusions. Atheists see that. So don't tell me as a libertarian you write that off. Even in our horror fiction today, the, the theme in horror fiction is, is it allows us to articulate what we can't say publicly. And basically horror is we have created this monster and we've let it out of the bag. There's a, there's a movie that has uh, Ryan Reynolds in it called life with Calvin. It's a little alien creature that starts as a cell. Watch it. It's creepy. And it'll frighten the daylights out of you. And really what, what people are saying in horror movies is this is Pandora's box. What do we do with this monster we've created? We, politically, we don't even know what to do with it. How do we even make rules? There's no logic to any of it. Well, I take heart in, and, I, and others would say, well, libido dominante means domination. We're finished. We're on the road to decline now. Now. In every generation, there's somebody who gets it, and if they're willing to fight back and make make effort to do it, you can make a difference. And I can tell you right now, I'm 53 years old and I have a hope for this state. And what occurred on Monday and Tuesday, I have even a greater hope. And every one of them, after I spoke him up, I, I want to do something. Show me what to do. What are you guys doing? I go, well, you, can I get your Wednesday night teachings? I go, yeah, I'll put them on a zip drive. They're all yours. And it's just one little church, but we can make a difference as a culture, but you have to stop and say, is it what I want? And is it my doing virtue or is it my thinking virtue? Am I going to be logical or am I going to be suppressed by them feeding my passion as opposed to my conviction? Conviction outlasts passion, by the way. And if you don't have a conviction, you are subject to passion and you will be dominated. And it's 755 and I have dominated you long enough. (laughs) Any questions tonight? Thoughts? Comments? Yes? Um, the verses where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Right. And I just wanted to make a claim for the church having a vision for the arts, because I think that does bring in a chance to use uh, the you know human desires, but in yeah. a way that's beautiful. But we don't do that very often. Right. Excellent. Uh, comments or welcomes or questions? Anyone else? It's late, you guys are tired, and you want to go celebrate Valentine's Day. Or maybe you're just embarrassed about the topic. (laughs) Anyone else? I know it's late. You want me just to close it up? All right.
Well, let me leave you with this as, as you guys go on about your Valentine's Day. You know, we have been given a unique gift. We're created with this, this sexual drive. But what's so profound about it, and, and I'll leave you with this, is you have eros, agape, and phileo. You guys have heard this before, but eros is, eros is a, a love that you have for objects, not for people. Right? And, and it's, it's selfish. It's what you see and you want it because it makes you feel good. And that's a passion. But, but agape is selfless. You lay your life down. And you say, I'm drawn to you, but now that I know your mind and your heart, I want to give you my life. And so the Bible says greater love, agape has no man this, than to lay down his life for a friend. It's the greatest love a human being can give, so you give your life. But the greatest form of love a human being will ever experience is called phileo. It's a mutual love. And it happens when two people lay their life down. The Bible says a man loses his life, he gains a whole new one. And two become one flesh. And it's this intimacy that the world longs for, but they're unwilling to lay their life down because they're driven by their passion. And that's why the, the most prof- profound form of love in our culture, or the most prolific form of love in our culture is eros. And it results in domination and everyone feeling empty and, and disenfranchised. But when you learn, as you've received agape from God, as I have loved you, so love one another, he, for God so loved the world, he gave, he laid down his life. Greater love has no man than this, to lay down his life for a friend. So we lay down our life for each other, serve one another, and this union of intimacy comes. And then God gives us that expression, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually, to connect in a way that no other human being can understand. And there's a difference between sex and love. Sex is what can I get, love is what can I give. And the reason why Eros is so prolific in our culture is from Eros we get the word erotic. And that's why all pornography results in humiliation, um, brutality, anger. Because you have two people engaged in something that should be an expression of intimacy and neither has it. It's just two people looking at the other as an object. And it ruins the value as the pinnacle of God's creation. And, and I'll leave you with this last one. I remember when I was in a high school and I said, you know, the fourth greatest, four greatest drives of a male adolescent, I said the fourth is, is sex drive and talked about it. And I, and I talked about this idea of, of intimacy. And this one kid says, you know, if the fourth most intense drive I possess as a male is my sex drive, why would God make me that way? And I'm not allowed to talk about God in the school or scripture he would say, he invoked God. He said, why would God make me that way and say, stop? And I can't have sex until I'm married. If, I'm, if, if my sexual drive is peaking at this point, and, and there's probably a couple more years until I get married, why would he do that? Is he cruel or something? And he said this comment. He said, don't you test drive a car before you buy it. And all, everyone's giggling in the class, and they're looking at me like, what do you have to say, prude? And I turned to him, and I said, yes, you do test drive a car before you buy it. But if I'm not mistaken, a car is an object. And all the girls went, yeah. And he said, well, then why would God make me this way and say, wait, is he cruel? And honestly, when he said it, I felt like, yeah, God is cruel. <laughs> I think every man's felt that way. Like, why? And I prayed. For those of you who are not prayers, it's a good thing to do. And I said, God, would you give me wisdom? Because it says in James, if you lack wisdom, ask for wisdom. I said, God, give me wisdom. And he said this. He said, ask him about his dad. I'm like... I don't even know where you're going with that. So I looked at the kid and I said, you got a good dad? And he goes, no, he's a jerk. 
I said, is he a good husband to your mom? He goes, no, I told you he's a jerk. He divorced my mom. He's a terrible dad. And then the Lord said, tell him about Jeff. Now, Jeff was a guy that I used to do these classes with, and he, his very first sexual experience, the very first time he ever kissed a girl was his wife on their wedding day at the altar after they said, I do. Their very first sexual experience was on their honeymoon night. That, that, and, and I said, let me tell you about Jeff. I, he, says, give me, he said, give me one good reason. I said, the good reason is Jeff. And he goes, what? And I go, remember the guy I told you about? And he goes, yeah. I said, I've been at Jeff's house. We were watching the Raiders game. He was a Raiders fan. Fourth quarter, score was tied, less than a minute remaining on the clock. We're glued to the television set. They're within the 10-yard line, getting ready to score. And I'm glued to the TV, and his wife comes in with groceries and kids hanging on her legs. And Jeff turns off the TV and helps her in with the groceries. I'm like, dude! I'm at his house. His two-year-old comes to him with a dirty diaper. The room's filled with people, and it's like Moses parting the Red Sea. People are like, hell, and birds are falling out of the sky. And at that point, if that was my kid, and he came up with his diaper full, I'd go, hey, go find your mother. All right? Jeff picks him up and goes, let's go change that, buddy. His wife was at the dinner, t- they were at the dinner table. He was up, and, and she was having a conversation. Plates were in. He started to take the plates in. I said, this guy works a 60-hour work week, and still makes it to his kids' soccer games. And I looked at Jeff. I mean, I looked at this kid, and I said, wouldn't you like to have had a father like Jeff, and don't you wish your mother had had a husband like Jeff? He goes, yeah. I said, a guy like Jeff who takes the fourth most intense drive he possesses as a human being and puts it on hold to keep himself safe for his future spouse, both physically and emotionally, is learning how to deny himself to serve another human being. God's in the business of making men who serve You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Be a servant of all. I said, that's why God did it. He's like, I get it. Yeah, I would have liked to have a dad like that. I said, you don't get to pick the parents you get in this world, but you can pick the kind of parent you're going to be. We can either make excuses and be victims or get back to the thinking virtues and realize there are moral foundations upon which we stand and start to live for them instead of being dominated by our passions. It's time to fear God. That's it. Happy Valentine's Day.